You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, welcome. Uh, my name is Pete Betke. I'm a econo- uh, professor of economics here at George Mason University and uh, the director of the F.A. Hayek uh, Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. And uh, this is a uh, PPE uh, book uh, sort of workshop uh, for Chris Coyne's new book. We're here. It's the title there that you can see. And uh, so I want to thank you all for taking the time to come on out. Uh, the way this is going to work today is we're going to get Chris to come on up and give a discussion summary of his um, main findings in his book. And then we're going to have discussants. Uh, Peter Van der Buren will talk first, then Bob Higgs will talk, and then Chris, and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience. I'm going to try to give very brief introductions before that. I want to thank uh, the staff at Mercatus and Claire uh, for putting this all together um, and making us uh, be able to do events like this. Uh, Peter Van der Buren is a 24-year veteran of Foreign Service Office at the State Department, spent a year in Iraq leading two State Department provisional reconstruction teams. Following uh, his uh, book, uh, We Met Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. Uh, Published in 2011, the Department of State began termination proceedings against him, reassigning him to make work position and stripping him of his security clearance and diplomatic credentials. Through the efforts of the Government Accountability Project and the ACLU, Van Buren instead retired from the State Department with full benefits uh, of service. Uh, Then we'll hear from Professor Bob Higgs. Uh, Bob Higgs is a senior fellow in political economy for the Independent Institute and the editor-at-large of the Institute's quarterly journal, The Independent Review. He received his PhD in economics from Johns Hopkins University, and he has taught at the University of Washington, Lafayette College, Seattle University, and the University of Economics in Prague. He has been a visiting scholar at Oxford and Stanford and a fellow at the Hoover Institution and the National Science Foundation. Um, he is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Gary, I don't know how to say this, I should know this because it's actually a Mises Institute thing, I think, Charlebaum uh, Award for Lifetime Defense of Liberty, the Thomas Saz Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Cause of Civil Liberties, Lysander Spooner Award for Advancing the Literature of Liberty, and the Friedrich Wieser Memorial Prize for Excellence in Economic Education and Templeton Honor Rolls Awards on Education in a Free Society. Finally, our author today, Chris Coyne, is the F.A. Harper Professor of Economics at George Mason University. He's the Associate Director of the Hayek Program, and he is also the Director of Graduate Studies at George Mason University's Economics Department. He is a co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics and co-editor of the Independent Review, and the book review editor of Public Choice. Um, In 2008, he was named a Hayek Fellow at the London School of Economics, and in 2010, he was a visiting scholar at Social Philosophy and Policy Center at Bowling Green. Uh, 
we're here today to talk about Chris's most recent book, but before that he published After War, The Political Economy of Exporting Democracy, also by Stanford, Media Development and Institutional Change, co-authored with Pete Leeson. It was published in, 19, in 2009. And he's the editor with Rachel uh, Coyne of the Handbook of the Political Economy of War. Um, in addition, he's published numerous articles in books and journals and in policy things. So without any further ado uh, from me, please welcome Chris Coyne. Thank you all very much for coming out, and um, thanks to Peter and Bob for taking the time to come and comment, and to Claire and Erica for um, setting this all up. So I have about 20 minutes, and what I'm going to do in that time is provide a very brief overview of some of the key themes and arguments in the book, uh, and we can touch upon more of them in the Q&A um, if you'd like. So to begin, what I want to do is highlight the four main lessons, or what I see as the four main lessons of the book. Ultimately. Uh, issues of humanitarianism, and I'll define that uh, momentarily, are ultimately economic issues and more specifically issues of economic development. More developed countries uh, are more insulated from the adverse effects of things like natural disasters. Uh, they have private property rights that protect most, if not all, citizens against human rights violations and so on. Number two, uh, aid and assistance from external governments is unable to promote societal economic development. So outside governments are unable to accomplish number one. Number three, short-term humanitarian assistance can, in principle, provide short-term relief. In other words, for people that are suffering in other geographic locations, other societies, it is, in principle, possible to help them with short-term relief, even though, as, as I'll discuss in more detail momentarily in the book, I argue that we shouldn't have confidence in government's ability to do this on a consistent basis across instances of suffering. And finally, economic freedom is the best means to achieve the ends of raising standards of living. In other words, economic freedom is able to accomplish what foreign aid cannot. It can facilitate development, which is the most effective means of minimizing human suffering. So let me talk about uh, some of these uh, lessons or provide some background on how I arrive at them. In the book, uh, this book started, uh, I was talk thinking about humanitarian uh, aid and short-term assistance only. And the, and the reason I got on this is because in my first book, I talked about nation building and military occupation. And uh, many, if not most people, agreed, disagreed with my position in that book. But one of the things or questions I would get asked all the time is, well, even if we do buy your argument, what about, and then the person would insert some kind of humanitarian crisis, a genocide, a famine, and they'd say, well, surely you think that there's a role for government, foreign governments to play to help these people who are suffering. And so that was kind of the impetus behind uh, doing bad. And as I started looking into how humanitarian action is defined, I realized that the time frame is a purely categorical or definitional issue. In other words, development economists differentiate between short-term aid and long-term aid, but really both are intended to alleviate human suffering. It's true the time frame is different. In some instances, you hand someone a bottle of water, that's immediate relief. In other instances, you build roads and infrastructure and schools and so on, and that might be categorized as long-term development aid. But in both instances, it's, it's intended to facilitate improvements in standards of living which minimize human suffering. So I take a very broad definition and the way I view humanitarian action, state-led humanitarian action, is any coercive or non-coercive action that is intended to alleviate suffering. So some examples, domestically, uh, Hurricane Katrina is a example, a non-coercive example of government attempts to alleviate suffering. Uh, extreme poverty around the world, foreign aid intended to alleviate 
poverty. That's an example of uh, humanitarian action under my definition. Post-earthquake uh, Haiti, following the 2010 earthquake, it's still ongoing. That's an example. And Libya, that's an example of coercive humanitarian action. We, the U.S. government was not invited in by the government of Libya, uh, but they intervened to, uh, in at least principle, to bring about improved humanitarian conditions. You can think of many other examples, but I wanted to kind of point out that I take a very broad view of what this includes. Now here's the thing. If you look at most discussions of this, uh, you will see that typically you hear something like this. We must do something to help people who are suffering. We have to help them and, and there's a moral imperative to do so. And I don't want to deny that there may or may not be a moral imperative. I don't want to engage in that conversation. What I want to point out is that in focusing on the ought, do we have a moral obligation to help those who are suffering? Oftentimes what is overlooked is what can we accomplish? What actually can be done? And this is crucially important, as I argue in the opening pages of the book, because things that might appear at first to have moral weight and a moral obligation might have much less of a weight once you take into, a face the, uh, take into account the constraints you face. In other words, once you take into account the various limits on what you can actually accomplish, you might determine that intervening is not the best course of action. The other reason I picked these quotes is because they're all politicians. And I don't have time to go into it today, but in the book I spend a chapter talking about how the state has become more and more involved over time in humanitarian action, especially since the world wars, but even before that, uh, and, and across the board, um, from everything from military interventions to short-term relief to long-term development relief to contracting and subsuming NGOs uh, and the budgets of those supposedly private organizations and so on. So that's why in the book I focus on state-led humanitarian action. But what I really want to focus on and kind of the central question of the book is can governments systematically provide assistance to those in need? Typically discussions um, of humanitarian action do one of two things. Uh, they cherry pick. So each side can pick cases that worked or didn't work. Of course, if you like intervention with military occupation, what's the first thing? Japan and Germany following World War II. That worked, therefore we can do X, is the argument that you often hear. But of course, I can just flip that around and say, well, X, Y, and Z didn't work. And then that's what the debate falls back and forth on. Even though when you move to large-scale statistical studies, there's disagreement about what foreign aid can do. For those familiar with development economics, just think, for instance, of Jeff Sachs and Bill Easterly. Two very respected scholars who are viewing the same evidence but view it very differently, the implications of that. So really the question we want to ask is can government systematically provide aid to those in need? And in order to do this, I think it's very important to look at uh, economic theory and the insights from the economic way of thinking. So let me briefly discuss what I argue are the limits of humanitarian action. One of the themes throughout the book is let's start by not saying what should we do, but what can we do? In order to understand the can, we need to first delineate the limits of what actually can be accomplished in practice. And what I want to start by talking about is this idea of what can aid accomplish? What can it do? And this is one of the most confused and conflated discussions in development economics and politics by policymakers and pundits. And they conflate two things. They conflate increasing outputs with economic development. So if you pick up a development report from Oxfam or from any international organization that claims to be helping those in need, and you flip to their successes, it'll say things like enrolled X amount of children in school built X number of hospitals or something along these lines. And they count those as successes in facilitating development in the name of removing human suffering. Now it's true that those things are increases in output, 
But that does not necessarily mean that they are contributing to broader society-wide economic development. And here's the distinction, the important distinction between these two things. Increases in societal development, well-being, standards of living in a general sense, do involve increases in output, but they entail increases in output of things that people value. In other words, there is a link between production and consumption. Increased output just entails increased production. But if it's not producing things that people value, it's irrelevant for development. It doesn't improve the standard of living of the average citizen. So then what is required to solve the core economic problem? Which, by the way, we teach our students in principles. We point out this idea of, of the, the core economic problem that we're facing. Well, for this, we can turn to Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek, who, of course, engaged in the famous calculation debate and discussed under what conditions individuals are able to engage in what they called rational economic calculation. As Hayek points out in his famous 1945 article, the relevant information that's necessary to allocate resources to their highest valued use is not given, but must be continually rediscovered. And the Mises-Hayek position was that that can only be discovered under a context of proper, uh, property, markets, and profit and loss. So why is this important? Well, I can first summarize this in one cartoon, which I like, if you're going to remember one thing about this. This is a famous cartoon from uh, the Soviet days. And there's, I don't know if you can read that in the back, so I'll read it. It's a one-ton nail. And the worker at the factory is asking the plant manager, who needs a nail as big as that? And the plant manager says, who cares? The important thing is we fulfilled the, the plan for nails in one felt swoop. This is an increase in output. GDP has been boosted. It's irrelevant for actual development. Citizens are not made better off by this. And of course, this was the problem with the, the Soviet economy in general. And economists fell prey to, the, prey to this, of course. Right? They kept saying that the Soviet economy is doing quite well. And then there were some individuals, Warren Nutter, Paul Craig Roberts, Rothbard and Man Economy and State, pointed out that, well, Interestingly, all of the investments that are being taken by the Soviet government in things like military, infrastructure, capital goods, and the average well-being of citizens is not increasing. Why is that? Well, it's because of the calculation problem. Now, here's what you need to think about, and this is why this is important. When you think about state-led humanitarian action, what's the comparison? Are they closer to what Mises and Hayek pointed out? in terms of what's required for development, the conditions for rational economic calculation, or are they closer to a centrally planned economy? And as it turns out, a very brief, or if you want to delve into it, you'll see it even more, a very brief review shows that it is akin to central planning. And when you start looking in these terms, you see one-ton nails all around you. When you start just looking through the lens of economics. Two very brief examples, following Hurricane Katrina, this is the infamous trailer example, right, where FEMA purchased all these trailers, they ended up being useless and sitting there, and they increased output. The output of housing increased, but it did not contribute to alleviating the suffering of those who have um, incurred the cost of the hurricane. A more recent example. Afghanistan, this is from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which reported that 97% of Afghanistan's GDP is due to injections from external aid. So now, of course, the argument is, well, we can't really disengage from Afghanistan because if we do, the economy will collapse. This is not economic development in the sense of entrepreneurship innovation that increases standards of living. It's fake. It's parachuting in goods and services from the outside, which again, might help some people, but it doesn't lead to any kind of long-term development in the sense that economists talk about it. So now here's the thing, that's the limits of what aid can do. 
aid cannot promote society-wide development. What it can do, in principle, is increase short-term, or excuse me, increase outputs which alleviate short-term suffering. But now we have a puzzle to explain. And there's two aspects of the puzzle. The first is that in many cases of delivering aid, understand that delivering short-term aid is a purely technological problem. We know how to produce water. We know how to produce vaccines. It's simply a matter of moving it from point A to point B. But we know from experience that in numerous instances, it never gets from point A to point B. That's part of the puzzle. The second puzzle is why is there a constant push within state agencies, bureaus, to push beyond those limits, to go beyond what can be accomplished. And really the main takeaway here is that in the absence of economic knowledge, in the absence or the inability of the, of the uh, ability of, of planners to engage in economic calculation, what they do is turn to political knowledge. And that political knowledge is generated through political institutions, which generates a, a variety of perverse outcomes. And one of the themes throughout the book that I discuss <clears throat> Uh, the kind of the main character, if you will, uh, kind of going off Adam Smith's man of the system is what I call the man of the humanitarian system. And just like Adam Smith's man of the system, the man of the humanitarian system thinks or has the mentality that they can move people around in a manner which makes them better off because the man of the system has superior knowledge. Smith likens it to moving people around on a chessboard. Uh, and of course, as he says, they assume that the, the pawns don't respond. They're completely passive. And so that's when I get into kind of the politics of it. And there's really three aspects that I talk about in the book. I'll briefly talk about each. I can't go into too much detail given the time limitations. And these are well known to those of you who are familiar with the literature on development and foreign aid. The first is that when you provide windfall profits, in other words, when you dump a lot of money into a situation, typically that is dysfunctional to start with. By dysfunctional, I mean it's highly corrupt. There are a lack of checks and balances and mechanisms for accountability and responsibility and feedback. What happens is you generate political competition on a variety of margins. You get competition between potential recipient governments. You get competition between agencies within recipient governments. You get competition at home within the United States and other developed countries. Governments, within those governments, you get competition between the agencies as they buy for control of policy and control of resources. And really what's left out of this formula is, is the supposed customer. The customer of, of humanitarian action is ultimately the person that's suffering. But if you look at how the system is set up, they really have no voice. There's no feedback between the person you're attempting to help and the actual source of the funds. And as the hierarchy or the bureaucracy gets more and more layered and more and more uh, vertical, if you will, taller, I should say, uh, that link is, is further and further bl uh, blurred. That leads directly to the concept of, or the economics of bureaucracy. The economics of bureaucracy in the book I pull up from, of course, Gordon Tullock and Bill Niskanen. And one of the things they, uh, or several of the things they pointed out is that bureaus have an incentive to maximize their budget, maximize the number of subordinates that are employed, and also maximize the array of activities that fall under the purview of their portfolio. And this explains why there is a tendency for government bureaus to push beyond the limits of what can be accomplished. How do you get a bigger gov budget in government? What sounds better? Saying, well, if you give us more money, we can do a really good job delivering water to people in Haiti. Or, give me more money, we need to go around the world and rid the world of bad people, end extreme poverty, make the world a better place, make it safe for democracy. Of course, the latter sounds much better than just saying, look, we really can just focus on delivering tents, water, and vaccines, so let's focus our efforts on that. 
And it's that push which is, encourages this man of the system mentality. It, it incentivizes it and rewards it. And finally, there's this idea of system effects. System effects refer to the idea that when you intervene in a complex system, a complex system has two kind of key characteristics. One is there's a united set of elements or units that are interconnected. And the second related characteristic is that the broader order looks different than any of the individual uh, units or elements. So the individual units or elements are interconnected, but they generate a broader order that has its own uh, unique characteristics. Uh, systems type thinking, if you appreciate it, limits your ability to intervene in the system to fix perceived problems because you quickly realize that it's beyond human reason to understand that system, let alone design a plan that can neatly fix it. The type of thinking that dominates state-led humanitarian action is linear thinking. Linear thinking is engineering or technological type thinking. It's A plus B equals C. This type of thinking is good for lots of things. For building bridges, it's good. For accomplishing tasks that we can comprehend, linear thinking is quite important. For redesigning the world according to our grand plans and desires, it's not very good because we can't hope to understand it. But more importantly, in intervening in one aspect of the system, it has effects which you can't possibly anticipate. It has effects which can, are not seen at the time of action, but more importantly, given the inefficiencies of political institutions, which are highly unadaptable, will not, adjust, relevant adjustments will not be made once those uh, adverse effects become evident over time. And you can identify lots of different cases of this. One case of a systems effects which is going on right now is Libya. So on the face of it, you overthrow Gaddafi. Terrible dictator, violator of human rights. You can't argue that in any way that he was a good guy. What happens? Overthrow him. People of limited intervention say, see, they work. Well, what's the outcome? It's true that Gaddafi's gone, but you have disorder within the country, a power vacuum with no clear, strong, centralized power. You have militias running around. But more importantly, you have regional instability now, which, of course, led to the French intervention in Mali, which then is spilling over. Weapons are then spilling over into Syria now, and so on. This, by the way, is not an argument against intervention in itself, the point that there's unintended consequences. What it is, is a word of warning that what at first appears to be a simple intervention to correct something, when you take into account what could happen and the limits on your knowledge, the net benefits are not as clear as they first appear. And at least you should recognize that and have a discussion. And the burden, the onus, is on the person who is the proponent of the intervention to demonstrate that when these negative unintended consequences do emerge, mechanisms are in place that will lead people to adapt and change their behaviors appropriately. So, where does this leave us? At the end of the book, what I come back and do is say, I want to rethink state-led humanitarian action. So you have the man of the system. In the words of Thomas Sowell, you have an unconstrained vision of what humanitarians can accomplish. And really what I come back at the end and say is, what we need is not a mentality of, an, of, of being unconstrained, but an, a constrained approach. And what would that entail? Well, let's say our end is to help people, and we realize the constraints we face, the ones I pointed out earlier. Really what we want to do is shift, shift discovery from, I know what it takes to develop a country, I can design it and implement it as I see fit, to the recognition that development is a discovery process that takes place within certain institutional environments. So what this ultimately entails then is getting those institutional environments. But here's the problem. As I've argued in my other book, establishing the institutional environments in other countries through gunpoint and occupation is quite difficult to do. 
So where does that leave us? Well, the argument I make in this book is that instead of the outward focus, we need to go over there and fix them. Let's focus inward. Let's focus on our own society and say, what can we do to help people in need? And I make two arguments. Well, I'll focus on one of them. Removing barriers to discovery. I'll, I'll put forth the more controversial of them, which is migration. We can look to reform our migration rules, our laws against migration, which I would argue is the best means for alleviating human suffering. Michael Clemens at the Center for Global Development has estimated, it's an estimate, that if we removed global barriers to migration, we would double global GDP. Even if he's off by a large amount, the impact is still enormous in terms of actually improving people's well-beings. Now you might say that's good for long-term development, but what about immediate short-term humanitarian crises? What do we do after an earthquake? We say, sorry, you can move here, but buildings are falling down. What are we gonna do? Well, actually we have a very good natural experiment of how this can work following the earthquake in Haiti. Following the earthquake in Haiti, there were 200,000 Haitian workers in the United States whose papers expired. And so the US government, being other regarding as it always is, said, we are not gonna send you back. We will allow you to stay here and grant you temporary uh, status as a worker here, even though your papers have expired. And according to the World Bank in 2010, those 200,000 workers sent home, sent back to Haiti, $360 million in remittances. That's more aid, by the way, than the US government gave to Haiti following the earthquake in that same year, which actually might be a good thing that they didn't give more, but nonetheless, private humanitarian action generated more aid than governments could do, which have enormously more money to offer. Imagine what could happen if we allowed more people in to the United States and then allowed them to send money back home to help those in need. By the way, from all OECD donor countries to developing countries, remittances are somewhere in the 170 to 180 billion dollars a year. And uh, to put that in perspective, in 2009, 2010, um, official development assistance from those same OECD countries was about 135 to 140 billion. So remittances are greater than the amount of aid given by um, government. So there's no reason to believe that if government wasn't doing this somehow, no one would be offering assistance to those in need. So, pessimism. I am under no delusion at all that what I offer in the book will be listened to by most people, let alone implemented in any way in the short term in terms of policy. And the reason why is for the same reasons I pointed out in terms of public choice problems <clears throat> or political economy problems with the persistence of this system. Uh, there's the, in the very incentives for reform are at odds with what I'm suggesting. In other words, there's the incentive to continually expand and, and push beyond those limits as compared to recognizing that there are limits. In fact, what this encourages is hubris, as I, as I mentioned, the man of the system mentality to continually take on more and more things. And you're seeing that now. If you look at US foreign policy now, what's happened? We've elevated development, defense, and diplomacy, the three Ds, and we're integrating them all. So now no, they're no longer viewed as separate entities. They're all combined. When the military intervenes, they have to have humanitarians with them. Um, as as uh, Colin Powell talked about NGOs are now viewed as force multipliers. They're simply extensions of the military. They're no longer independent and so on. So I have no, no strong sense of optimism that this will have an impact in the short run. But I do end the book on, a, on an optimistic note and this is how I'll, I'll end. Uh, which is if you look at a couple indicators and, and a couple realities of the world, I think there's reason for optimism for what I'm discussing. One of them is that between 1980 and 2005, uh, average economic freedom on a global level increased uh, at a pretty significant rate. 
If you look at Andre Schleifer's paper in the Journal of Economic Literature, The Age of Milton Friedman, he discusses this and, and the gains that were made over that period in terms of removing global barriers to trade and economic activity. Uh, second, as I mentioned, there's a robust private sector, both in terms of remittances, but also in terms of for-profit firms, which are typically poo-pooed by uh, humanitarians because they're viewed as being greedy for-profits. Uh, but actually, for-profits are very effective at responding to humanitarian disasters as we saw in the United States in the wake of Hurricane Katrina with companies like Walmart, Home Depot, and so on. Uh, and finally, there is a significantly large global informal economy. Uh, the journalist Robert Neuwirth has a book called The Stealth of Nations. He estimates in that book that the global informal economy is about $10 trillion. If that's accurate, it's the third largest economy in the world behind the US and, and China. Uh, and these activities, by the way, are not things that we would consider illegal activities like hitmen and whatnot or, or trading people and children. It's economic activity that's dri driven underground because of excessive regulation and barriers to trade. So from that standpoint, entrepreneurship is all around. It's just a matter of unleashing it. So to sum up and, and to conclude, my intention in doing bad is to emphasize that when people attempt to transcend economics when dealing with economic issues, perverse and harmful outcomes emerge. Issues of humanitarian action are fundamentally of an economic uh, nature and require economic answer answers. And ignoring the economics of humanitarianism, which if you think about it, the issues I've discussed are really no more than principles of, of economics, the core economic way of thinking applied to a, a very relevant policy issue in a consistent manner. Uh, ignoring that will not invalidate the insights of economics, but it what it does do is continue to impose significant costs on those that are already suffering and misses an opportunity to make their lives better off. Thank you very much. Okay, so now we'll hear from Peter Van, Van Buren. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I uh, wrote a book too, it's called We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. So in case you were not clear who, in fact, lost that war, it was, it was probably me. Um, it's a very important to, to, to talk about what happened in Iraq because I, in fact, was the man in the system that Chris refers to in his book. Um, I was charged by the U.S. Department of State with the rebuilding of Iraq. We like the term rebuilding. Other people said nation building, humanitarian, reconstruction. Pick, pick the buzzword that appeals to you most. It was all pretty much the same thing. And the Department of State sent me to Iraq specifically charged with this mission to fix this, to rebuild Iraq and not only uh, alleviate any humanitarian suffering, but along the way create an ally of the United States. And we were given extraordinary amounts of, of money uh, to do this with. And over the course of my time there, running two of the provincial reconstruction teams, the vehicle for all this, we managed to break pretty much every rule that Chris cited in his book. Um, and the results, I think, are fairly obviously uh, a failure. What I'd like to do today, very, in the brief time that I have, is to go through some of the things that happened in Iraq and relate them to Chris's uh, more academic examples and put a, uh, a human face on, on some of the things that he refers to as the perverse outcomes of uh, our efforts there. Um, to begin with, the, the concept of the man in the system was alive and well in what we did in Iraq. 
and is certainly at play in our efforts in Afghanistan today and other places around the world where the United States has continued in this object of, of nation building. In Iraq, we didn't just separate the man and the system kind of theoretically uh, from the environment that he was trying to influence. We actually built walls around him. Most of the decisions about what were being done in Iraq were either being made in Washington, which was far away from Iraq, um, or they were being made by at the American Embassy, which was in the Green Zone in Baghdad, which was surrounded by a moat and walls and barbed wire and, and was about as far away from Iraq as you could get and still theoretically uh, claim to be in the country. We used to make a joke uh, among ourselves that, uh, you know, how does the U.S. Embassy keep track of events in Iraq? And the answer was, from the roof. Um, and it was actually very true. And, and the, the ability to see what was going on was outweighed by the internal desire to believe that you could, in fact, control what was going on by making pronouncements. And so we would often be given directives uh, from Washington, such as, well, the Secretary of Agriculture is going to be making a big speech uh, next week in, in Iowa, so please create some agricultural successes that he can cite there. Try to get that done by, by next week. Um, we would also be told that it was now time to begin empowering women, and, uh, which is a great idea. But the driver, of course, was that a new ambassador for women's empowerment had been imported uh, into Iraq, and she wanted to have things uh, empowered during her, her time there. And so the mindset that we could influence these events uh, was very real and very much uh, the man in the humanitarian system that, that Chris uh, talks about. The other thing that struck me uh, in talking about his, uh, the motivations, I mean, most of us at some level wanted to, to do nice things. I mean, the title of my book, We Met Mel, is only partially sarcastic because I don't think anyone was out there to say, gee, I hope I really mess up somebody's life today or, or you know, spill, spill water on somebody or, or make a mess out of things. Um, I think we all, you know, internally wanted to do something nice. But in fact, our motivations were very different. We were driven by a desire to please our bosses because in a bureaucratic system, that is how one gets ahead. Um, we were, of course, driven to create outcomes such as more students are in school and more bottles of water were delivered, the things that Chris talked about. But more importantly, we wanted to make our boss happy so that she was happy and could make her boss happy and, and on up the line until one day Hillary Clinton smiled and, and all would be, be well for us. Um, on a 24-hour news cycle, that was really kind of a bit of a challenge to, to do. Um, it used to be that we had to have a success a week. Um, the bosses would have a big meek, weekly meeting on Fridays in uh, the embassy, and everybody had to feed a success up, uh, upstream uh, by Friday. And these, these could be real or imagined, but you had to have something each week in order to get things done. The real problem came when they, had, when they started to have two meetings a week, and then we had to have double as many successes um, on a regular basis, and that got kind of tricky. Um, many times these successes devolved into bureaucratic ones um, that were far removed from any humanitarian thing, and largely built around the concept of photo ops. Um, all of the money that we spent uh, required at least, at the minimum, the creation of an English, English language sign announcing this whatever it was, this, this barn was built by the United States, or you know, this, this road was widened by us, or this garbage mound was picked up someplace else and dumped here by us, or whatever. Um, and it got to the point where this was getting to be such a bother to drive around Iraq to these places that we actually seriously considered setting up a bit of a stage set inside of our own fortress so that we didn't have to go out and take these pictures. We would just use an old wall, put up the sign, um, and there, and we actually had gotten as far as uh, 
writing up uh, the memos about this, we were going to purchase camels and donkeys. Um, and that's apparently where the idea fell apart, is that the army said that they weren't going to be responsible for feeding camels and donkeys, and the idea went away. But it was actually considered uh, fairly seriously um, for, for a long time. Um, we did a lot of harm in, in two categories. I'll call them, uh, because this is an academic audience, I have to label things. Uh, the first would be subtractive harm. Um, and the second will be what I'll call real harm. Subtractive harm is what we did by not doing things. For example, um, it was very important that money was spent in the proper way. And so, the, uh, so through some process, it was decided that we needed to dig a well over there. And this was going to help uh, the people of Iraq. The quickest way, of course, to dig a well would be to go out there, round up a handful of unemployed men, which are everywhere in Iraq, um, and say, dig a hole over here for us, please. And you know, here's a few dollars, the same way some people go into the parking lot at Home Depot and, and pick up a few folks to, uh, to help out. Um, but that wasn't how things were to be done. And as part of this process of consuming the NGOs and other organizations, USAID, which was one of the, the money funnels, um, would take 100% of the money and would give it to a US-run corporation stationed in Jordan who was set up specifically to take this money they would skim off 20 or 30 percent and then pass it on to their counterpart in Iraq, which was, I guess, in Iraq and may or may, or may not have an Iraqi uh, person present. But it was designed then to skim off another 20 or 30 percent to hire a contractor who would probably go out and hire the five guys who were standing around doing nothing near where we needed a hole, Doug. And by doing this, we managed to make sure that about 90 percent of the money that we spent never actually got spent on anything that we were doing in Iraq. Um, and some people would argue that's probably for the better in that when we did spend money, we usually made things worse. So in a way, that may have been a bit of a, of a success. Um, the need for output, as I said, was, was absolutely critical. And I, I gave the example of, of signs. But on the subject of wells, um, it became very real. We, uh, we were told that a, in a particular area, we were supposed to dig 50 wells, paid for 50 wells to be dug. Um, I myself did, did very little digging personally. And uh, we said, okay, great, we're gonna go dig 50 wells. And so we went out to the area and said, congratulations, people of Iraq, we're gonna give you 50 wells right here on the George Mason campus. And they said, well, the water table here is really shallow. And if you dig 50 wells, none of them are gonna have any water in it. You need to dig like two wells and then they'll both flood with water and will be happy. So I went back and explained this to my boss, and my boss said, two wells is less than 50 wells. No, dig 50 wells. So we went out and we dug 50 wells, and it didn't work. Um, they were all very dry, but because I was a little bit smarter than the average bear, I reserved a little bit of money secretly, and we actually hired guys to go out and fill in 40 of the wells, and thus was an unexpected success, which I did not report to my boss. So that, that all works out very well. Um, the idea of the three Ds is also very striking, because um, unlike uh, many of my colleagues, I was not in, at the embassy in, uh, in Baghdad. I was out in the field embedded with a military unit, uh, actually the 10th Mountain Division, um, which is made up of people who can walk 24 hours a day. Um, this was a huge challenge for a 52-year-old bureaucrat who um, did not walk 24 hours a day and, and live on brief jerky and water. But I, I, I adapted. They were nice people, but to them, their idea of using this humanitarian money was literally called money as a weapon system. 
they actually had a pamphlet that was describing this. And to them, the money was simply another weapon that could be used against the enemy, in this case, the Iraqis. And the planning sessions for using the money were conducted at exactly as the planning sessions for using other weapons were conducted. They were called targeting sessions. And you went in and you identified the target. In the morning, we do the lethal targeting. And we, you know, this is, this is a bridge we're going to blow up. In the afternoon, we do the non-lethal targeting and say, this is a school we're going to rebuild. And it was all based on the same concepts of, here's a problem. How do we solve it, either with artillery or money? One or the other is going to fall on this place, and, and hopefully things are going to get better. Um, it made it very difficult to actually uh, accomplish anything. What we did accomplish, and now we're into the real harm category, is we created a nation of Tony Sopranos all over Iraq. If you walk in and, into a, a, a bar outside of George Mason uh, uh, University and say, hi, I'm incredibly stupid, and I've got huge bags of money that I'd like to give away to someone. I mean, could anyone see uh, where that might go wrong for you? And what we did is we created an entire group of people in Iraq who, who biologically, Darwinian fashion, evolved to take this money from us. And it, so we ended up enforcing uh, empowering gangsters, creating new gangsters, and otherwise causing bad things to happen. Um, the uh, unintended consequences were, were exceptional, and, and almost the, uh, the title of my book could have been Unexpected Consequences, and I'll just touch on some of those very quickly. The creating of, 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 an, of a, a very vibrant mafia within Iraq was certainly one of our most significant uh, accomplishments, but they, they also happened on a much smaller level. We managed to doom local uh, budgeting and government by paying for everything ourselves. If the U.S. government was paying for the trash to be picked up, why should local government figure out actually how, how to do that? When we stopped paying for the trash to get picked up because we moved on to another target, um, we actually created a rabies epidemic um, because the garbage accumulated in such large amounts that the, dog, the wild dog population exploded. Um, the Iraqi police, who used to shoot wild dogs, uh, um, realized that when they shot things, especially at night, the Americans would mortar the area. And so they stopped shooting the dogs, the garbage accumulate, and people started uh, dying of, of rabies. Um, we responded by supplying rabies vaccines uh, in great, amount, great numbers. Um, one of our most significant uh, unintended consequences um, came about, again, from the man in the humanitarian system who said, oh, I told us quitting time here in Washington. Um, don't give money to Tony Soprano. Everyone you give money to in Iraq has to be an NGO. Sounded like a good thing in Washington, and, and certainly was trumpeted widely uh, in the media and things like that. And then what happened is every Tony Soprano then re became an NGO. And these guys, you go out, these guys would have a, a fan of name cards. Here's Tony Soprano, Sunni Sheikh, Tony Soprano, contractor, Tony Soprano, NGO. Which one did you need from him on, on that given day? Better yet, and it's very significant because Chris talks about removing the barriers to, to economic freedom. Uh, one thing would be to eliminate or, or lessen government restrictions on, on, on economic freedom. Um, the tiny little office that was staffed by like three old people that licensed NGOs in Baghdad ballooned into hundreds of people, all of whom were raking in millions of dollars in bribes because suddenly becoming an NGO in Iraq was a very important thing to do and worth a lot of money. So we did all that as part of our, uh, our great accomplishments there. Um, Chris touches briefly, and he didn't get a chance to mention it in his, uh, in his speaking today, on the fact that the uh, humanitarian workers often 
bring bad things along with them. Um, we've all seen reports of the UN uh, workers in Africa that participate in the child sex trade um, and uh, other places where humanitarians are at least immune from local laws, if not legally immune, in the case of, of Iraq where we were diplomatically immune. And I remind you there, quite seriously, of the, the number of people that were murdered by our security contractors, Blackwater and, and the other thing, the other uh, security groups, and more importantly, the trade in human beings that the United States uh, brought along with it to Iraq. Um, we weren't about to wash our own dishes and cook our own food, and we couldn't trust the Iraqis to come onto our, our military bases and do it for us, because they would kill us. And so instead, we imported workers from the third world to do that. All of the, uh, the cooks and cleaners were Sri Lankans. Anyone who did anything to do with the toilets uh, was Bangladeshi. This all had to do with the recruiter slash pimp slash slaver that was finding these people for us. Um, we had child soldiers from Uganda that came to guard our perimeter. Um, and of course, Filipinas uh, were brought in ostensibly to work at the fast food restaurants, but oftentimes uh, were trafficked uh, in, in the sexual trade. And this was all part and parcel to the, the good news that we were bringing. And the results were as predictable as Chris's book uh, would, uh, would make it seem. And I think anyone who wants to pick up the news and look at uh, what's happening in Iraq today can see what those trillions of dollars actually uh, went into. Uh, in closing, um, which just told me it's time. Uh, in closing, I just want to recount very briefly um, what happened to me because I wrote this book um, in hopes that George Mason will treat Chris better. Um, Two years ago, when this book came out, the Department of State uh, began efforts to uh, prosecute me, put me in jail for writing it, claiming that there was classified material in it. There's not. Um, when they failed at that, they then uh, tried to seize the profits from it, claiming that uh, the, the interesting things in the book I had learned on government salary, and so I can't write a book about them as if politicians don't write books about their things. Hillary is working on her memoirs, by the way. Um, they failed at that. Um, they took away my security clearance for linking to a WikiLeaks document on my blog, and then sent people into my life to try to find something to fire me over. And so diplomatic security agents were in my neighborhood asking the neighbors if they ever smelled marijuana or saw, you know, saw unsavory people coming and going. Um, they went through my financial documents. I was called into the office and shown a list of all the websites I'd looked at that week from home and asked why I was looking at uh, websites uh, about the Middle East, duh. Um, my financials were, were looked at. My credit card statements were on a desk in front of me when I walked in. Um, and I was accused of all these things. Um, they eventually threatened to take me to court for something and uh, keep the game going until I had no money left, basically seeing if they could uh, bankrupt me over the course of all this. When all that started to get to a head, I was very lucky that uh, the American Civil Liberties Union and a group called the Government Accountability Project, as Peter mentioned, um, came in and were willing to defend me and my First Amendment rights. And so luckily, um, we negotiated a uh, conclusion to all this where I retired from the State Department um, and no longer uh, serve the US government. I say that uh, for two reasons, well, three reasons. One, of course, I want you all to feel really sorry for me um, because I lost all my hair in the process, and, and I feel bad about that. Um, the other, and, and I used to yell at the dog when I was frustrated. Um, whoop, um, but the, 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 the two reasons, the real, the real two reasons I, I want to bring that up are, are, number one, to show that there has been some 
progress in America will, being willing to think about these things, from a book that practically got me thrown into jail to the point where we can now have a fairly dispassionate academic discussion about whether these things uh, are work, will work or how to do them and things like that. But the final thing, of course, is to hope to persuade anybody from George Mason University here not to prosecute Chris for writing his book or go through his financials or, or try to bankrupt him or anything like that. So I just want to hope that GMU will please uh, give him a break. Um, we're going to be doing this again, this reconstruction business that we've documented has failed time and time and time and time again. We're going to be doing it some more. And so it's very important that people like Chris continue to write these books and you all continue to listen to what he has to say, because if we're going to do this, we could hope at least to do a little less harm the next time, possibly a little more good, and possibly be, make better use of the taxpayers, your money, when we start spending it in Syria or Libya or, or the next place. Thank you. Bob? 15. Uh, I want to begin my remarks by congratulating Chris on a, a very good book and uh, a very good in, in several respects. Uh, first of all, he's dealing with an important subject. I'm sure <clears throat> those of you who've been around universities for a while know that many books are not about important subjects. <laughs> most, perhaps. This one deals with a very important subject, and uh, it, it is deeply researched. Uh, I'm very impressed by uh, all of the documents and books and articles and relevant materials that Chris has poured over in order to uh, familiarize himself deeply with his subject matter. Uh, it, it is uh, a subject matter that is interpreted in a very sound theoretical framework, uh, and uh, that, again, is not something we, we get from every analysis. We often find people who are willing to dig deeply into the subject materials, but then they make a hash of uh, their interpretation of what's going on. Uh, Chris does not do that at all. And finally, the book is a very well written, uh, and as someone who spent much of his life as an editor, uh, I was especially grateful for that. Uh, the the uh, presentation is clear, precise, uh, and the, the tone is always just right. Uh, it's dispassionate, yet at the same time it packs a punch. So uh, the presentation is excellent. Uh, Congratulations, Chris. Very, very well done. Uh, secondly, uh, you may perhaps uh, have very little interest in state-led humanitarian projects. Uh, it's not a subject that has occupied me in my research, uh, and so I, I wasn't sure how much interest I would have when I started reading the book, <clears throat> but I would say that even if you have no interest in humanitarian uh, uh, projects at all, this is a book from which you can learn a great deal uh, because uh, Chris's analysis is general. Uh, the book is a kind of handbook for how you would go about uh, studying any 
government-run program whatsoever because the analysis that's brought to bear in analyzing and uh, critiquing uh, state-led humanitarian efforts applies in almost every case equally to other government programs. So if you want to understand how uh, the government part of the world works, this is an excellent book to read because you'll learn exactly what you need to know uh, to stop <coughs> letting people make a fool of you. Uh, now what does this uh, approach amount to? It, it, it involves subsuming several different intellectual uh, or academic traditions, uh, all in one, uh, in, <coughs> in Chris's case, seamless uh, uh, set, set of propositions. Uh, the first is public choice analysis. Uh, the second is uh, basic Austrian economics, especially with regard to uh, the so-called socialist calculation problem, which is really uh, better called the calculation problem of all non-market uh, activities. Uh, and the third is uh, what Chris refers to as the economic way of thinking, and uh, that is uh, what back in my day we called the UCLA Washington price theory. Uh, some other universities uh, uh, were involved in the same basic approach to economics as well, but it's a, uh, it's a kind of applied price theory in which you, you learn very practical, uh, almost uh, incontestable things about how relative prices change actors' actions. And Chris does a great job of bringing this to bear. And the final element is institutional immersion. Uh, you can have all the knowledge about public choice theory and Austrian economics and, and price theory that you, you could possibly have, yet if you don't understand the actual institutions of a concrete situation, you will be at sea when you go to apply that theory. Uh, and Chris uh, deeply Im immersed himself in the institutions that were relevant to the problem of state-led humanitarian efforts, and as a result, he's come up with very convincing conclusions about the actual incentives and constraints that operated to cause people to do bad, uh, even though they may themselves have often believed they were doing good, at least within the limits of their bureaucratic positions. Uh, I, I have practically nothing critical to say, and so I'm a flop as a discussant in that sense, but, uh, but there is one ele element of Chris's book that uh, I could criticize. I'm not going to. I'm actually going to praise it. And that is, uh, uh, Chris's rhetoric is uh, beautifully dispassionate, uh, which is to say uh, there are no villains in this book. Now, that's an odd thing, considering that this is a book about doing bad. Uh, you'd think that people who do bad <laughs> deserve to be viewed as villains. But uh, uh, as Chris lays out the analysis, the reason they're doing bad is not necessarily that they are bad people, but because the incentives and the constraints of the institutions within which they operate lead them to make certain choices, which when we stand back and assess are obviously bad outcomes, uh, particularly in, in regard to the ostensible aims of these programs. The, the aim is to alleviate human suffering. Has that been done? Well, you'd think that if, if you spend 60, 80, 100 billion dollars in one country to alleviate human suffering, you ought to damn well alleviate a lot of human suffering. But did you? 
Did you actually cause as much as you alleviated? And I think one certainly might argue in Iraq that uh, more was caused than alleviated. In fact, you pick up the daily paper and hardly a day passes that you don't read about some horrible thing happening, hundreds of people being killed in one way or another by disorder and fighting in, in, in Iraq. And that is, that is not a situation that always existed in Iraq. This is an outcome of things that were uh, under, undertaken by the U.S. government, uh, ostensibly for the best of reasons. So there are no villains in, in Chris's version of this story, and, and that's good. Uh, that's how analysis ought to be done, uh, dispassionately, uh, calmly, uh, without uh, getting embroiled emotionally. Uh, I wish I were capable of assessing things that way. Uh, finally, uh, uh, Chris does a good job of laying out a kind of checklist at various points of uh, his anal analysis, his, his analytical propositions, and his conclusions, and particularly early in the book, he gives you a preview on page, pages 20, 21, uh, where he has 10 propositions about the realities of state-led humanitarian action. Now, some of these, as he indicated, relate to the provision of immediate uh, relief when uh, pe people are starving after an earthquake or they have no water to drink or so forth. Obviously, uh, something beneficial can be done e even by the U.S. government. Uh, it's not incapable of every single thing we can imagine. So uh, it, it could haul a plane load of water to, to some Iraqi city that's capable of doing that, and that might be a beneficial thing in certain circumstances. But but Chris also indicated that when, when we get beyond the, the immediate outcomes of some humanitarian disaster, uh, what's at stake here is always whether we are helping to promote longer-term sustained economic development, because it's only through that process that we bring large groups of people into a position uh, where they will be less likely to suffer uh, and where their material well-being will, will be enhanced. Uh, we, we, if we know anything about economic history, we know that. Economic liberty was an essential condition of sustained and substantial economic growth everywhere it's taken place in the world. And sometimes all you had to do was open a little window of economic liberty. Give a Chinese farmer just an inch and he might take enough of a mile that he would transform rural China. Uh, so uh, it, it may not take a lot of economic liberty. We don't have to create laissez-faire societies. We have to give people room to maneuver entrepreneurially without fear that every success they have will be ripped off by the local state agents. So uh, that's what we need to have, and, and that will give us long-term economic development. Now, when I read uh, Chris's checklist of, uh, of 10 things, it reminded me of of, of something in my own history, and, and, and I'm old enough now that, that I'm expected to just muse about things in the old days. And so I'll do that here for a few minutes. So when, uh, when I went to teach at the University of Washington in 1968, Doug North, uh, the chairman there, had created a course for himself to teach some years earlier called Economic History and Economic Development which is a combination of those two areas normally taught separately. And, uh, and Doug had somehow tired of doing that uh, or, or had wanted to do other things now. And so 
uh, he assigned me to teach this course, and I did, because I couldn't say no, uh, I did teach it for about 10 years, and then I grew so disillusioned with everything that I'd been myself learning and then passing on to the students from what was called development economics that I pleaded to be relieved from this duty and, and was. And, and at that time, I decided I would write down what I had learned about development economics. And I, I wrote an article, it's the first thing I ever wrote for non-academic publication called 10 Rules for Understanding Economic Development. And uh, this was published in the Freeman in March 1978. And so I dug it out the other day and found that there's a lot of correspondence between what Chris writes in his book and what I concluded back in 1977. Uh, and uh, some of my rules were the, were the following. Uh, do not conceive of development as solely economic. The incentives that encourage or discourage productivity-raising behavior emerge from the institutional, cultural, and historical environment within which the individuals act. You don't have to be a genius to see that's not the sort of institutional environment an outside power can come in and transform with a wave of its hand, even if the hand is clutching a lot of money. Uh, another rule, do not postulate that economic development is the sole objective of any relevant decision maker. Development economists are always talking about doing this or doing that or adopting this program to promote economic development. But as Peter made clear, uh, the promoters are actually primarily concerned with pleasing their bosses in the bureaucracy, not with economic development. Nobody in the intervening society or in the society they intervene in is primarily interested in economic development. Everybody has interests of his own that are much more focused and personal. Uh, another rule, do not project your own tastes and values onto others. Well, that ought to stop nation building in its tracks right there, okay? Because that's exactly what nation building intrinsically requires is exactly that projection. Another rule, do not assume that comprehensive governmental programs are necessary to create or accelerate development. Ultimately, the case for comprehensive planning reduces to the simple fact that some, including the planners, wish to coerce others to do what will not be done voluntarily. If people want economic development enough to bear its costs, they voluntarily take the actions that promote it. Forcing somebody to do something for that person's own interest is a contradiction in terms, economically. Another rule, do not assume that governments are impartial and benevolent agencies to promote the public interest. Government officials are not, in general, disinterested humanitarians. More correctly, they are self-interested bureaucrats, politicians, soldiers, and dictators. Governments simply cannot be relied upon to possess superior knowledge, and even if governmental officials did possess superior knowledge, they could not, for obvious reasons, be relied upon to put that knowledge to good use. And finally, which brings me back to the course I had to teach for 10 years, uh, don't forget history. 
Development economics, is a quintessentially historical subject, has been practiced mainly by researchers with neither much, much knowledge nor interest in history. And that has been uh, practically a disaster for the uh, outcome of their efforts. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.